Well, we are two weeks away from Christmas. Comes up fast. And uh, and we all know that in our culture, uh, for most people, uh, being two weeks away from Christmas means primarily that we're 14 shopping days away from Christmas. Uh, because Christmas really has this, um, I mean, it's, it's deteriorated in its meaning in our culture um, into a primarily or largely materialistic feeding frenzy uh, where it's all about stuff and, and presents. But, but even so, um, even though there is a strong uh, consumeristic bent to the way we celebrate Christmas, even, even in the midst of that, Jesus still gets a pretty strong uptick in popularity at Christmas time. He still gets mentioned more often. Uh, you can even turn on radio stations that are usually secular and they'll be playing Christmas music, you know, in between the, the Santa songs and the Grandma Got Ran Over by a Reindeer, you get, uh, you get Christmas carols or, or mentions of Jesus, you know, on, on just normal radio. Uh, you drive by, you see nativity scenes popping up all over the place. Uh, you get people who are, throughout the rest of the year, maybe only marginally religious, making some sort of hat tip to Jesus, um, whether it's uh, coming to church or uh, maybe getting the family together around Christmas time and reading the, the, the Christmas story out of Luke chapter 2 or setting up a nativity scene together. Uh, or maybe it's just watching Charlie Brown Christmas. I don't know, but, but you've, got, uh, you've got in some ways lots of people recognizing Jesus at least a little bit over Christmas. He becomes more popular. Um, more so at Christmas time than any other time of the year, even Easter, which, as we know, is much more significant. You know, why is it that Christmas time is really the time when Jesus gets popular? Uh, I, I think one of the reasons is because at Christmas time you've got this wonderful, sweet, largely inoffensive story about a sweet little baby Jesus in a little manger. I mean, little babies. Babies are cute. We've got a baby here in the front row. Like we just, you, you love little babies. You can't help but love the little babies. And you've got Jesus, uh, the best little baby of, the, of all, right? No, no crying he makes. That's not in scripture, but, uh, you know, but we get that image, this wonderful little baby and this great story. And yeah, there's some trials and hardships in the story. Yeah, there's no room at the inn, and they have to give birth in the, in the, in the stable and they put the baby in the feeding trough. But it, but it all turns out okay. Right? It, all, it all works out fine. It makes a wonderful uh, PG-rated movie. I know, the Nativity Story came out recently. It got a nice, nice PG movie, movie rating, mild peril. And everything turns out all right. See, we love that sort of story. Jesus gets more popular because we think, well, it's just this, it's the story of Jesus, the baby Jesus. Everybody loves baby Jesus. Uh, but there's a part of his life, a very significant part of his life, that doesn't get quite as much attention. Um, there's a part of his life that's not as popular after the PG-rated nativity story comes the rated R, Passion of the Christ. You know, you make the movie of the end of the life of Jesus, and it's bloody, and it's gory, and it really doesn't seem like things turn out all right. It's not a Hallmark, Disney movie sort of thing. And so Jesus takes a dive in popularity when you look at the story of the end of his life. Christmas time, everybody loves the sweet, cuddly baby Jesus. It's easy to be a casual fan. But when you look at the Jesus of Good Friday and Easter, uh, the Jesus who gets crucified, who's bloody and, and gory, 
Um, it really calls into question the seriousness of your commitment. You're not a casual fan of a crucified Jesus. What we're going to look at today is exactly that story. That story of the crucified Jesus. Um, you know, you're, you're getting in our culture right now, um, you know, lots of mixed messages. You're getting the consumerism, but you're also getting that little uh, baby Jesus popularity bounce. You're, you're getting that. I trust that you know that sweet, wonderful story about Christmas. So we're going to keep on working, working our way through Mark. Uh, in Mark 15 tonight, uh, today, because I, I want to give you the other side of the story, or the, the rest of the story. The story of Jesus is not just about a sweet little baby in a manger, but it's a story about how that baby grew up and ended up being less popular than a murderer. Okay. Everybody loves baby Jesus. He's super popular. But by the time he grows up, in his last hours... He is less popular than a murderer. And we need to know what we're going to do with that. So if you've got your Bibles, please turn with me to Mark 15. Uh, I think it's in the 680s of your pew Bibles if you're, if you're looking there. Just look for the big 15. We're going to cover Mark 15, verses 1 through 32 today. Uh, and I didn't give you an outline today because I really just want to focus on the story. And I'm not going to try to draw out a lot of points that you can fill in your blanks. I just want you to follow the story and get what's happening here as Jesus takes the, uh, the, the spiral down in popularity until he is more despised than anyone else on the face of the earth. So if you're in Mark 15, let me give you a little background of what's been happening Mark 15 begins on Friday morning. So the events of the last few hours have taken place on Thursday night. Jesus got together with his disciples. They celebrated the Passover together, his last supper. Then they went out to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed. He saw this suffering that was coming, that he was going to have to bear the wrath of God for the sins of the world. And he prayed that he would be able to, to not take it. And yet he submitted to God and said, not what I will, but what you will. I'm, I'll do it. And in that prayer of faith, God strengthened him, and Jesus stood up and faced his accusers. Judas came, betrayed him with a kiss. Uh, the, the soldiers uh, took Jesus to a trial before the Jewish leaders, where the Jewish leaders had nothing on him, and yet Jesus was in complete control and admitted that he was the Son of God. So they convicted him, them, of blasphemy, which is only blasphemy if it's not true. But they didn't believe that it was true, so they convicted him of blasphemy, and they said, he's going to die now. That all happened on Thursday night. Now we're at Friday morning. Let me pick the story up in chapter 15, verse 1. And here I'm just going to read uh, the first five verses. As soon as, it was, as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. So we're just going to walk through this passage section by section. I'll make a few comments on each part so that we 
make sure we understand the story, but we're just going to work our way through. Uh, so in these first few verses, it's, it's Friday morning. The chief priests and scribes have decided Jesus has to die. Uh, now they need to figure out how they can convince Pilate to kill him. Because the, the Romans were in charge. They were in charge of, of the land. And while they gave the Jews some autonomy and freedom to make their own decisions, they did not let them kill people. And so they had to come up with a reason why Pilate would want to kill Jesus. Now, the fact that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God wouldn't have worked. Pilate wouldn't really care. So they needed to frame it in such a way that would make the Romans feel like this guy was worthy of death. So they go to Pilate and they tell him, Jesus is claiming to be the king of the Jews. And I'm sure they framed it in a very political way, saying he, he is setting himself up to be a rival to Caesar. You cannot let this go on. You must kill him. So Pilate takes the trouble to investigate this a little bit, and he asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus gives him a weird answer. He says, you have said so. You say so. Almost like, if you say so. Now, this is clearly an affirmative answer. He, he's not denying it. He could have just said, no, I'm not the king of the Jews. He, he's saying, yeah, I am the king of the Jews, but in such a way as to let Pilate know, but not the way you think I am. All right, we know Jesus is the king. That's been the theme of Mark so far. In the first eight chapters, the whole first half of the book of Mark was establishing that Jesus is king. He's king over death. He brings people back from the grave. He's king over disease. He can heal whoever he wants. He's king over the demons. He casts them out with a word. He's king over nature, stopping storms and multiplying loaves. He can do whatever he wants. So yes, he is the king. But he's not the sort of king that the Jews are accusing him of being. He's not the sort of king that Pilate assumes that he is. Remember in chapter 10, when Jesus was talking to his disciples, and they were saying to Jesus, you know, we can't wait until you're the king, and, and we get to sit on your right hand and on your left, and we're going to have all this power and luxury and authority. And Jesus says, not so fast. That's not the kind of kingdom that I'm setting up here. The Son of Man, me, I, I didn't come to, to be served like all the kings that you know of. I came to serve. I came to give my life as a ransom for many. So yes, he's the king, but we've known all along he's a unique sort of king. He's a king with a cross. Jesus knows he came not to rule, but to die. And so he doesn't defend himself against Pilate, and Pilate gets amazed. Now Pilate doesn't want to hand Jesus over to the Jews. He doesn't want to give the Jews what they want, because Pilate doesn't like the Jews. So if they come asking him to, 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 to kill Jesus, his natural inclination is to say no. Jesus isn't giving him any help here. He's not defending himself. So Pilate comes up with another idea. And that's what we see in verse 6 through 15. Let's read that. It says, Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said, Why? What evil has he done? 
But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So there was this custom at Passover time that Pilate would release one prisoner, whoever they asked. It's sort of a popularity contest. Interesting form of justice, isn't it? Uh, and they, he goes to the crowd and he would ask them, who do you want me to release? And by popular acclamation, they would pick a person and he would let that person go. So Pilate thinks, here's a great opportunity for me to give the Jews uh, that are coming to, to crucify Jesus to not give them what they want. Here's, here's what I'm going to do. I'm a genius. So Pilate's thinking. He said, I'll take Jesus and I'll put him up against a murderer. And this is who Barabbas is. If you read in, in verse 7, it says there's this, these rebels in prison. Uh, there had been some insurrection. There were lots of little rebellions going on all the time. Uh, and so these guys, had some, they'd killed somebody during this little uh, terroristic sort of rebellion. Uh, they're trying to achieve their means through violence. And so this murderer, this terrorist, has been throwing in, thrown into prison uh, for killing some folks. And so Pilate says, here's what I'll do. I'll set up this popularity contest that Jesus can't lose. Right? I know the high priests have handed Jesus over because of envy. Jesus is so popular, that's why they want to kill him. So I'll just put Jesus out here, and I'll set Jesus up next to this terrorist and this murderer, and, and we'll let the people choose, and there's no way they're going to pick Barabbas, because they love Jesus. So he sets him up there, and, and he says to the people, you know, you want the king of the Jews? And they say, no. They say, no, we want Barabbas. See, in this moment, I mean, this just shocks us out of our Christmas cocoon. How could, you, how could you not pick sweet little baby Jesus? How could you not pick Jesus here in this situation? And yet, at this moment, at the end of his life, he stands up there in front of the crowds, and the crowds pick a murderer instead of Jesus. Well, Pilate feels it spinning out of control. But he makes another mistake. He, he appeals to the crowd again in verse 12 and says, well, then what should I do with Jesus? Bonehead move, Pilate. You've already lost uh, control of the crowd, and now you're asking them, what should I do with Jesus? But he asks them, and they say, you should crucify him. He makes a third mistake and says, well, why? What evil has he done? Now, Pilate, you're supposed to be in charge here. If you're in charge, you don't ask the people uh, to, to, to give you permission to not carry out justice. No, you, you, have to, you have to just assert yourself, Pilate. But no, he doesn't. He asks them, well, what evil has he done? He begins pleading with them. And then he, when he does that, he loses control of the crowd. And they begin shouting, crucify him, crucify him. So Pilate has to choose between having a riot or putting to death an innocent man. And he puts to death an innocent man. So he decides to have Jesus scourged, which is a violent, violent whipping, and then he hands him over to be crucified. The humiliation of Jesus is quite startling here. He's done nothing wrong. He's been railroaded through two trials. People have chosen a murderer instead of him. He's been whipped without cause, and now he's going to be crucified. But it keeps getting worse. Because he hands him over to the soldiers, and the soldiers go out of their way to humiliate him. Verse 16. 
The soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they'd mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. So Pilate's handed Jesus over to the soldiers, and they take him inside for a private exhibition. And they gather all the soldiers together, a battalion. It could be upwards of 600 soldiers. This is a big group. And they're all getting together just for the purpose of humiliating Jesus. You see what they do to him there. They put a purple cloak on him. Purple is the color of royalty. So they're dressing him up like a king. They put a crown on him, but it's a crown made out of thorns. And then they begin to, to salute him. They say, Hail, King of the Jews. Of course, they're joking. And they're striking him with a, with a reed. They're spitting on him. And they're pretending to bow down to him like they would bow down to a ruler. Now, now this is just excruciating irony here. It's excruciating. The, these folks, are, are, they think they're mocking Jesus. They think they're doing things that are not true. They're dressing up like a king and they're saying, Hail, King, and they're bowing down because they think he's a failed king. But everything they're doing is true. They should be saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They should be really bowing down and worshiping him. He should be really dressed in a purple robe and a crown. See, all throughout this chapter, you've got this excruciating irony where people are saying one thing, thinking they're mocking Jesus. But in truth, they're saying what's actually happening. This is the king of the Jews. This is the king of the world. We ought to be bowing down and worshiping him. They think that Jesus is completely out of control, but he is in control of the whole thing. He talked about what was going to happen a few chapters back. In chapter 10, verse 33, he gave this prediction. He said, see, we're going to Jerusalem. Check. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death. Check. And deliver him over to the Gentiles. Check. And they will mock him. Check. And spit on him. Check. And flog him. Check. There's only two things left. They will kill him. And after three days he will rise. See, they're mocking him as the king, but he is the king. He's in complete control of what's happening. This suffering is for a purpose. The next thing to happen is that they need to kill him, and that's where the story goes next. Verse 21. They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. So by this time in the proceedings, Jesus is exhausted. Normally they would make the prisoner carry the cross beam of the cross from uh, the place where they were condemned until they got to the place where they're going to be executed. But he can't carry it. 
He's so battered and beaten and scourged that he's exhausted. He can't do it. So they impress someone from the crowd, a guy, Simon, from Cyrene, which is in modern-day Libya. So he gets this Libyan to carry the cross of Jesus. And they make it out to Golgotha. Uh, he gets there. They offer him some wine mixed with myrrh, which might be uh, an, an ancient um, anesthesia, uh, which is like kind of a painkiller, like, like in those westerns when they give you some whiskey right before they dig the bullet out of your leg. Uh, but um, you, you, don't, you don't watch those movies? Okay. Uh, so anyway, they, they offer the wine mixed with myrrh, but Jesus doesn't take it because he wants to keep his head clear. He's, he wants to stay focused on what's going on. And then you get this final indignity, whereas they're crucifying him, then they take his garments and they gamble for them. So it's not enough that he's been falsely accused and, and, and condemned to death and beaten and mocked, uh, but now he's stripped naked and he's put up on the cross. But even in, this, um, even in this indignity of them gambling for his clothes, we see that God is still in control. Because this very thing that happens was predicted back in Psalm 22. Psalm 22:18 said that uh, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. See, even the small detail of what happens to the clothes of Jesus as he hangs on the cross is under the complete and sovereign control of the God who is in charge of this whole thing. So they crucify him, and they put a sign above his head that says, The King of the Jews. And they put him between two robbers, two guys who are probably bandits, maybe even some of those folks who did the rebellion with Barabbas, and they're hanging on the cross with him. Now even at this point, you think it's the end, it can't get worse. It does. Because he's up there on the cross. You know, he's been defeated. He's hanging there. It's over. And now all the mockers come out of the woodwork. All the people who are hanging back now come and put their two cents in, trying to make fun of Jesus. Let's pick it up in verse 29. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So we've got three groups of people here who come to mock Jesus. You've got the passers-by, you've got the chief priests and scribes mocking him, and then even the folks who are hanging up there with him on the cross are making fun of him. And they've all got this one theme in what they're saying. It's that kings who are real kings don't end up on crosses. So if you are the king, if you're the real king like you said you were, then you would not be hanging here right now. So you're obviously a phony, and we're just going to tear you down. Because if you really wanted to save others, if you really were the person that you said that you were, then you would be able to save yourself. Verse 31. The chief priests say, he saved others. He cannot save himself. And they're absolutely right. They're, they're absolutely right. 
They said, he saved others, he cannot save himself. This is more of that profound and beautiful irony of this passage. They don't know it, but they're absolutely right. They think it's wrong. Uh, they think it's, it's testimony that Jesus was a liar, that he's up there and he can't save himself. But the truth is that it's either Jesus dies on that cross and saves others, or he gets down and saves himself. He can't have it both ways. He can't be the one who both saves others through his death on the cross and the one who saves himself by getting down. This was the struggle he had in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before. He realized it was either him or us. And he chose us. You know, they thought it was proof that he was a failed king that he wasn't really who he said he was because he was hanging up there on the cross and he wouldn't get down. But it's really proof of how much he loves us. See, he couldn't save us and himself in that moment. It was either hang up there on that cross and bear the penalty for the sins of the world, the sins that you and I have committed, or get down save himself, and leave us hopeless. And he decided to stay on the cross. And in staying on the cross, he saved us. So this is the rest of the story of the life of Jesus. It's not so cute and cuddly, um, it's not so tame. It's one of the appeals of the Christmas story. Little baby Jesus lying in a manger isn't making claims on you. It's a wonderful story. You can, you can read it. You can watch it. You can sing about it. You can, uh, you can feel good that you remember Jesus this Christmas season. Uh, but the baby in the manger isn't making any claims on you like the bleeding king on the cross. But the baby in the manger came to be the bleeding king on the cross. And so in a way, he does make a claim on you. He's saying, I died on this cross. I didn't save myself because I came to save you. Jesus came as a baby and he grew up as a man and he died on the cross to save you. And so he does make a claim he does, in effect, say to each of us, will you accept it? Will you accept it? You know, that's, that's the first application we all have to make when we approach this central truth of the Christian life. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Okay? The first application we have to make is, have I accepted that? Have I received him as my Savior. Because when Jesus was up there hanging on the cross, he didn't automatically save everyone. The fact that he stayed on the cross doesn't mean that everyone automatically got saved. It meant that he paid the penalty for sin, but you still got to receive it. Just like the Christmas gifts you're going to get in a couple weeks. I could buy you a great Christmas gift, but if you don't receive it, it's of no good to you. And what Jesus purchased on the cross in this moment was the best gift any of us could ever receive. 
And so the first application for you today is, have I accepted that? This is why he came. This is what it's all about. If you haven't, and you want to, then I'd be happy to talk with you after the service. There's plenty of people who'd be happy to talk with you. Anytime. Got to get that straightened out. But the second application for, I mean, for many of you, I know, um, we have accepted this gift, but it doesn't mean we're done with it. Right? We, don't, we don't put this on a shelf and say, oh, that's, that's just something that happened a long time ago. Um, I've moved on. No, this is, this is what our life is all about. This is the pinnacle of human history. This is the pinnacle of our lives. The fact that Jesus himself came and lived and died for you and for me. And as we'll celebrate in a couple weeks, and he rose from the dead, which makes it not just a pointless death. He really accomplished something. But, but we don't leave it behind, right? When, when it comes to, to Christmas time, we, we don't forget all of a sudden that Jesus died for our sins, right? We, we, don't, we don't forget that this story exists. We don't become like the rest of the culture and think, well, Christmas is all about just feeling good and giving presents and, um, and, and remembering, you know, baby Jesus, isn't he wonderful? And, and, and we don't forget that Jesus makes claims on our life, right? We don't just check out and say, oh, it's just, it's just Jesus, you know, he's, yeah, that's something that happened to me in the past and I've, you know, it's good, I've checked that box and now moving on. No, I mean, Jesus did all this for you. He demands our lives. So I'm not against Christmas. I'm not against Christmas. It's a wonderful thing. I'm happy that Jesus gets a little bump in popularity. I'm happy that, that, that there's more opportunities for us to, to talk about him and that there's more consciousness in our culture, even just a little bit, that, that Jesus is important. But I, I don't want us to just stay there. I don't want us to just think that that's the be-all and end-all of why Jesus exists and, and, and what Christianity is all about. No, but remember the rest of the story. And let's worship him for it. Let's worship him for it. Let's, let's worship Jesus, for, not just for coming into the world, but coming into the world to die for our sins. Let's worship our Savior, not just for being a king, which he is, but for being the king with a cross, who all along came to give his life for you and for me, for our family and friends that we're going to see this Christmas who don't yet know him, for our neighbors across the street who are going all out with the Christmas lights and yet have no idea that they have a Savior who died for their sins. So let's worship him, let's serve him, let's give him everything we've got this Christmas season because he has given his life for us. Let's pray. Lord, would you please burn this story in our hearts and in our lives that when we question whether you love us, we would just remember that you did this for us. When, when we wonder if it's worth it, 
to follow you, that we'd remember that you died for us. Um, you know, when we wonder if, um, if we can ever be forgiven for the sins that we've done, that we would see that you paid that penalty for us, that when we lose heart, we would be encouraged with the truth of the cross. Oh Lord, make our hearts more deeply in love with you, that we would see how much you love us, and that would spur us on to love and good deeds for others in the name of Christ. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.